Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is December 23rd, 2014. This is episode 1490 of the Survival Podcast. And it is the last regular episode of the Survival Podcast for 2014. Tomorrow I will play the Christmas special, the all-new Christmas special. That also includes a special gift to the TSP community. More about that a little bit later in the housekeeping section today. Um, but that is it. The year is over, at least as far as podcasts are concerned for the Survival Podcast. While I'm gone from now until January 2nd, if you decide you want to uh, still hear the Survival Podcast, you know what? There are 1,489 episodes available to you to listen to from the past. And remember always, if you're just like, I want to listen to an old episode of TSP or a random episode of TSP, go to survivalpodcast.com, look in the center column, and scroll down just a little bit be, 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 you know, beyond the, the basic stuff at the top with the connections and stuff like that. And you'll see a link, and it says, listen to a random episode. Click it, and it will just pull at random a post from the blog. It could be a video or a post. If it's not what you're looking for, Hit it again until it brings up an episode. You're like, that's interesting. And you download it or click it and listen to it. Just uh, something you can do in the interim because I am shutting down. I'm going to be doing some cool stuff for you guys with little short videos, though, during the downtime. So keep it on the YouTube channel especially and Facebook. Anyway, before I get into the main topic of today's show, which you guys have chosen, let us take care of our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one as always, let us take care of our sponsors since they do so much to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consultant, the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors who are not only great instructors but perpetual students. All students at Fortress Defense are required to take training from other organizations every year to maintain their status as a trainer. You know, there's going to be an awful lot of New Year's resolutions made. How about making one for 2015 to get world-class firearms training? The best place I know to do that, Fortress Defense Consultants. Give them a shot, you'll see why. And remember, if you can't get up to Indiana where Frank Sharp Jr.'s operation is, consider putting together a group, six or more people. Get in touch with Frank. They'll bring the training to you. Check them out, FortressDefense.com. Next up, the company that is what it is, does what it does, and says what it does, all in one and that is ready-made resources. All the resources you need ready-made, ready to go. Point, click, buy on their website. Great shipping, great service, and great pricing. You'll find it all at ready-made resources. Everything for your prepping needs from the practical to the tactical, from guns to gardens, and everything in between. ReadyMadeResources.com. Next up, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. It's your last chance to join in 2014, though I don't know that that's really that big a deal. But, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I am going to do a Christmas sale. Everybody else does it. Why not? Just use the discount code CHRISTMAS uh, between now and January 1st and get the MSB for 35 bucks for a year instead of 50 bucks for a year. That's a great deal. Again, the discount code is CHRISTMAS between now and January 1st, 2015, and you'll get the first year of MSB for 35 bucks. If you want to pay by mail, you go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members, and you'll see a form at the bottom. You can do check, money, order, etc. And if you do, you can just deduct it down to 35 bucks, write Christmas on the, on the form. And if you pay by silver, just write Christmas on the form and we'll give you a little extra time instead of, you know, discounting the silver. Remember, if you want to pay by silver, 
This is it. January 2nd, that price on the silver is going up to two ounces a year. Silver is way too low for me to keep the pricing where it is. In fact, it would still be a steal at two ounces a year. So this is a chance to get it for silver at a discount. So uh, there you go. I'm not going to put this on the blog. I'm only putting it in today's episode so that the people that listen regularly will know about it. Again, discount code Christmas. All right. With that, let us do the year that was the episode, 1490. And uh, I have for you Marriage by Proxy, Rooster or Hen, the Pope, the Pope's Special Chair, and the Human Machine, a Vitruvian Man. Uh, I'm not going to do Vitruvian Man, but I think everybody's seen it. It's iconic. Just know that it was created this year. I'm going to do Rooster or Hen, the Pope's Special Chair, because, well, it's kind of odd. And uh, it's kind of time for some fun stuff. So well, odd is usually at least a little humorous. And this is humorous in a ha-ha weird sort of way. Back in the 9th century, an error was made when electing the Pope. It was discovered that the man they had elected as Pope was a woman. Pope Joan is a legend, somewhat an embarrassment for the church, so how can one know if Pope Joan is real or not? Given that it's an embarrassment, it's probably real, or they would have like made it go away. Note that in the late 1400s, when a Pope is elected, he must be seated in a chair with a hole in the seat and then lay back. It is then duty of the youngest cardinal, not the job you want, right, to reach up under the seat and, well, uh, make sure the Pope is a man. The cardinal then shouts, he has testicles. A book outlining these traditions is published sometime between now and 1493. It seems incredible, but this procedure is corroborated by other accounts. The seat is still exists in the modern day in the corner of a Vatican museum. It is unlabeled, and if you ask what it was for, you will be told the Pope once sat there in laid-back position as if giving birth, thus representing Mother Church. Your mileage may vary. My take by Alex Shrugged. The grabbing of the testicles as a ritual is his ancient practice when making a binding oath. The practice is mentioned in the Bible when Abraham makes part of it, makes a pact with his servant to find a wife for his son Isaac. The Bible uses the euphemistic phrase, put thy hand under my thigh, but it amounts to the same thing. In modern day, we make a joke out of this practice by saying that a fellow keeps his testicles in his wife's purse. I've often, I'm going to, I'll, I'll, let me finish and I'll, I'll deviate on, on my own time. While it was somewhat insulting, it, it suggests that he has entrusted his decisions to his wife rather than making those decisions for himself. If you are Italian, you have a full range of gestures available to to you, not all of them insulting, and many of them obviously referencing the testicles. So uh, one of the ways we used to bust on guys that were like under the thumb of a woman was we, we instead of saying they were in her purse, what we would say is that you you know they were in a coffee can on the shelf at home. And why don't you ask your wife, girlfriend, etc., if you can take them with you today? Uh, which is just a nasty, mean thing that men do to each other. But anyway. Um, you know, I've been told this is true, and I don't know if it is, but it sure seems to match that the reason that we say to testify, right, you swear and you testify to the truth or make a testament is because of the root of swearing under the testicles. So testicles testify. That's true. It's a bit odd. Um, I sure wouldn't want that job. Let's reach up under the old man's coat and see what's there. But I guess somebody had to do it to be sure Seems like, you know, there could have been easier ways to do this, but um, just one of those odd little bits of history from the church that apparently they prefer not to talk about, and who can blame them? Anyway, next up, let us talk about Bob Wells' plan of the week this week, uh, last one of the year. 
Today's plant of the week is the Warren Pear. The Warren Pear tree is highly adaptable from zones 5 to 9. That's pretty adaptable. It's an excellent quality dessert pear, and the tree is highly resistant to fire blight. Uh, that's really, really cool, because fire blight is a death sentence to pears and apples at times, if not managed properly. It produces a medium to large long neck fruit with a pale green skin. Sometimes it turns blushed red. has smooth flesh with no grit, and it's juicy and buttery with suburb flavor. It is cold hardy to 20 degrees below zero Fahrenheit, ripens in early August, it's a good keeper, requires only 600 chill hours, and it's self-fruitful. Find this plant more, more, find this plant and more at bobblesnursery.com. Uh, I'll tell you what I think that's really awesome about this. Since it's self-fertile, for those of you that only can put a few trees or one or two trees in the backyard, that's awesome. The fact that it's fire blight resistant is awesome. And if you're only going to have a few trees, you want them to be good keepers. So this has a lot going for it. It's a plant that's not on my property, uh, but when I figure out what's going in for the spring, and I'm doing a lot less planting in the spring than I used to, but I'll do some, Warren pears are going in. Check them out today at bumblesnursery.com. All right, with that, let us get into the main topic of today's show. So last week, I did a show and I said, hey, on Tuesday it'll be the last show of the year. You guys tell me what you want me to do, and whatever gets the most interest, I'll do. What got most, most interest was I had previously said I could do 30 low-capital businesses you could start uh, and run a business of your own, and people wanted me to do that. I've changed it to 22. And the reason I changed it to 22 is I did 22, and I looked at it and said, that's a pretty good summation, and it's my last day of work of the year, and I don't want to do eight more. I'm just being honest with you. Uh, maybe I'll come up with some bonus ones on the way. But I want to start out with telling you why I was... A little, oh, hold on. I almost forgot to tell you guys uh, on this. Uh, one of the things I'm going to talk about today is backyard nurseries, which I've talked about before. Today and tomorrow are the last days to pre register for the plant propagation course at Perma Ethos and get a big discount 50 bucks off the retail cost of the thing. It doesn't cost anything to pre register. You fill out a form, that is all. So I'll have a link in today's show notes where you can do that. If you haven't done so yet, you're going to want to do so. This is Nick Ferguson's online plant propagation course, which is going to give you all the basics to set up your own backyard nursery. Okay, So just a reminder of that. So anyway, in doing this show, I was leery. And I was leery because I'm going to tell you something that's very important right now, and I need you to believe me. An idea for a business in of itself is shit. It doesn't matter. It's not important. It's shit. It can also become the thing that makes you lots of money. Okay? But in of itself, divorced from the why of the business, the how of the business, the execution of the business, and the passion of the person starting the business to make it successful, it is shit. I can go out online right now and probably find a list of a thousand business ideas, all of which are viable, all of which are possible, and all of which can be started up for less than five grand. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I can come up with ideas for hundreds of products that are viable products that could be created, would be low capital intensive, initial startup, or even some that would take some money to get started up, but we would be worth the investment. It doesn't matter. Without the dedication, the execution, the marketing, etc. So, what I'm going to do today is trust you. And when I give you this list of businesses, I'm trusting you to do this. To look at them as a think tank. 
What could I do? How could I adapt that? What kind of business is like that? What really fits in my life? How can I make that work? Not to just say, well, here's a list of stuff Jack says to do. I'll pick one and do it. And if I don't succeed, Jack's a jerk. Okay? Because you could be wildly successful at any of these businesses. You could ignore all of them, create a new idea, and be wildly successful at that. And you could flop at all of them, too. It, it is so much more about understanding what makes a business successful. So I want to start out with the fundamentals that actually make a business successful. Number one is the business having a product with a market that you can reach. And I'm going to get more into that as I talk about the six abilities of successful businesses here in a second. But you have to, you do have to have a product or a service. But once that's done, then it's about execution, which means you running your business like a business. It's about passion. And many times the passion is more important about being successful than passion for the product or service. I am a big believer in following your passion. I think in this day and age, there's no reason anybody should be in a business where they don't love the product or love the service or at least love the people they're serving. But you can be in a business and not really be wild about the product, but be passionate for the business itself and be wildly successful. But if there is not a burning passion in you for your business to succeed, it is going to fail. Or it will become nothing more than a medium income paying job for you. It will not be a business. It will not have a vibrancy. It will not build on additional levels of capital beyond financial. It won't have a life of its own. It won't be a living thing. It'll just be what you do, which means it's like a job. It might be better than a typical job, maybe, but in the end, it's going to have all the burdens of business ownership with none of the real rewards unless you have that driving passion in it i also want to talk to you about like what why you should have that passion like i know when i talk about this some people say i don't want to be a business owner and i can't help you if you really feel that way i really can't and i can tell you you can be a better employee and a more profitable employee for yourself uh and, and have a lot more power as an employee with a with an entrepreneurial mindset but if you actually have an entrepreneurial mindset you're going to end up quitting that and doing something for yourself um I understand that not everybody can do this, or everybody would. Um, actually, I don't believe that everybody, not everybody, I think anybody that wants to can. I believe that it, the, what the case is, is not everybody has the desire, the motivation, the commitment, the courage, the fortitude to do it. You could do it if you wanted to, but you have to build those things up. Not everybody has the risk tolerance to build a business, though they can be pretty low risk if you approach them the right way. Um... But I do believe it's the best case scenario for anybody to build their own business versus work. And let me tell you why. Because I've done both. And there's no comparison. There's no comparison. And when you extract yourself from employment, typical employment, the longer you're extracted, the more horrific you realize it is. One of my favorite movies is Office Space. In fact, if you go... If you go to the survivalpodcast.com and look at episode 1490, today's episode, you'll see a great big picture. And it's one of these like spoof motivational pictures, you know, like the ship going through the ice and, you know, leadership or whatever. But it's Peter Givens from the movie Office Space. And the big word across it is motivation. And he's sitting with his arms on top of his cubicle and it says, it's not that I'm lazy, 
It's that I just don't care. I thought that was perfect for today. And this is what happens when you're employed long enough, you start to feel that way. And the bigger the company with the more politics and the more layers, the more you feel that way. I've always loved that movie for the look that it gives you into the mindset of corporate America. And it is. It's bang on. It's, it's an older movie now. And when you watch it and you see like the, the computers that people are using and, and what have you, you can tell that it's dated. But it's still spot on to what modern business is. And when I worked for Sage Telecom, we had some consultants that came in during a buyout. <laughs> Sound familiar to those that know the movie Office Space? And we called them the Bobs. And if you've watched the movie, you get that too. Now, they weren't named Bob, but we called them the Bobs, and they were the Bobs. And I've always liked that movie. And back when, when, I, when I left Sage, I had a moment where I became Peter. I literally became Peter Gibbons. I had taken that job because it was a job I could do in my sleep. It really was. It was a job. I was in the office three days a week and worked from home two days a week. I probably worked three to four hours a day. If that, I could do my own thing at the same time. And everybody loved what I did. They just went like, this guy is awesome. This guy, I mean, every, the business was going up, 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 up. We were acquiring customers. I, I tied into a lot of infrastructure I'd already built for myself. It was easy. It was a cakewalk. And we were going to develop these new products. And I was sitting on product development committees. And it was like, this is fun. And they pay me and do benefits. <laughs> That's how I felt at the time. And then... Um, the Bobs came, and I went, I'm not doing this. I, I have way too much marketability. I have way too much potential. I already have my own minor business units producing revenue. I don't even really need to be here to just pay the bills. I'm not tolerating this shit. So uh, all I did was they asked me to farm out some work for them uh, before they knew I was leaving, and I contacted Neil Franklin, who became one of my business partners, And I said, hey, do you guys want this? I'll just give it to you if you want. If you guys want to develop this customer service platform that they want uh, through one of his technical companies. And he's like, right, maybe. Uh, but why don't we have lunch? So I went up and talked to Neil, and he's like, I'll match your salary plus 25%, give you equivalent benefits, come work here. You don't want to be there. And it was just like that fast. Like the guy, He knew me from, from two years ago. I had worked with him, consulted with him. He's like, we'll create companies. We'll do something. Just, just come over here. So... With that, I'm like, I don't have to take this shit. So I had this attitude of very much like Peter Gibbons does in the movie of I just don't care. And honest to God, it was comical. The Bobs did everything they could to retain me. They begged me not to leave. They started getting ridiculous with offers of money. And my entire marketing team I was part of all decided they didn't want anything to do with this this, this acquisition. And all of the, this was a dream team marketing team. If I could reassemble this team, I would. I mean, these people were great. Um, the, the VP of marketing that I worked under is the man that was the architect of the American Airlines, uh, loyalty program. Okay. Just to give you a le the level of quality. One of the other individuals I worked with was from Accenture. I mean, the, this was a world class marketing team. And all of them had the ability to just pick up the phone, call a former headhunter, and say, I'm on the market. What do you got? And what was funny is, is they got down to the junior people on the team who had been offered positions, more with senior people. This is a big team. It's like senior people would leave and go, well, we're going to need an analyst, and we got an analyst here, and he's really good. Hey, you want to come over here and work with us? Yeah, okay, fine. So like the whole team, they started throwing stupid money at junior people who went... You guys are heading for a hole in the ground, and everybody left. 
And when I left that place, I felt really good. And I remembered, you know what? It was actually pretty good until that happened. When I watched the movie Office Space recently, I thought about what it was really like to have to show up, to have a break time, that they, somebody else said, to have a cubicle, to have somebody come by and ask me about my progress, to have to file a report, to have to make meetings that I didn't set or didn't want to be in. And I realized it was hell. It was hell. It was the worst time of my life as an employee. It was the worst job in some ways I ever had, even though I loved it and made decent money. There were jobs I had previously where I worked a lot physically harder and, you know, doing fiber optics and things like that. But those jobs were actually better because I wasn't confined to this space, this office space. And I started thinking about all of my life working as an employee. And I, I say this now when I do speaking engagements, and people laugh, and they think it's funny. And it's kind of meant to be a joke, but it's not a joke. There are times when I have a dream, and in my dream I have a job, and someone's telling me what time to come to work or something like that. And I wake up, and I, I, I don't like the way I feel. That's the biggest reason I can give you to own a business. It's the best way to earn a living, because you take control. No one else could, you have a market to serve and you have things that have to be done. Like I have to get up every day and do a show or my business falls apart. But I do it on my terms, my way, my time schedule, etc. And how loose your business is is based on how you design it. And some need to be more regimented and some people need the regimentation. Some people like it. But I guarantee you, whatever you're doing, wherever you are, if you're an employee, someone pulls your strings and it's not what you want. I thought about all my years in sales where I was working remotely, so I didn't have to go to an office space, right? Home office, travel around expense accounts. I mean, a dream job for some people. But I had to make deals with people I didn't want to shake their hand, let alone be in a contract with them. I had to beg my own company to be able to do the right thing for the customers that deserved it. And I was forced to do the, the what you would think of as the right thing for customers that didn't deserve it. And I was owned. And that's all I can tell you. If you have a job, your employer owns a part of your life. They might be a good owner, they might be a eh, owner, and they might be a shitty owner. But one way or another, you're owned. You're controlled. And that's not horrible because jobs are, jobs are how I learned what I know. The experience gained from my workplace time is just It's everything that I have now. The business ownership then took on a new level of learning, becoming responsible, having to do it for yourself, etc., thinking differently. But the fundamentals were developed as an employee. But with an employee, as an employee with an attitude that was extremely optimistic toward this is not what I'm going to do for the rest of my life and extremely opportunistic as to what will this lead me to. And some people don't think that's good as an employee, but I'll tell you this. Everybody I ever worked for would say, that man made me money. That was my job to make the money, and I am no more obligated to continue to do that for them at a time that I have a better opportunity for myself than they are to continue to employ me at a time that I'm not profitable for them. I had no loyalty to my employers beyond fulfilling my obligations because they had no loyalty to anybody beyond having that employee be profitable. Any employer will only wait so long when an employee becomes unprofitable before releasing them because it's the only way to run a business. So now let's move on to deciding what kind of business to run. 
And I'm going to go kind of fast through today's show, you know, because it's designed to get you thinking, not to tell you what to do. But there are six things that I consider the abilities of business, attributes of, of businesses, and they all have to have these things. And you have to decide what ratios of them are important to you based on what you're doing and how you design your business based on these six abilities. They are scalability, profitability, referability, marketability, deliverability, and repeatability. Okay, these are, these are the six things you have to look at. I'll go through them briefly each. Scalability. How easy is it to scale the business up to meet demand if it becomes in excess of what you can deliver? And how much do you desire to do that? You might say that, well, I could scale this business to be a multi-million dollar business. And I would have to have employees, and I don't want that. Well, then, will it scale with just you, or just you and a contractor or two, to a point where it produces more income than you, you can imagine that you need? Right? So, if it only scales that way to the same income that you would get from doing what you do as a job, honest to God, you're probably better off with a job. There's so many things your employer does for you that you're unaware of. And that's why employees aren't given a lot of the things they think they deserve. Because they have no idea how much they're actually being given. They don't know about matching Social Security. They don't know about the underlying cost of benefits. Not just health care. That's not the only benefit there. right? And they don't understand the cost of a plan administration and keeping the lights on and all of the other things that go into your burden labor rate. So unless you can get to a point with your scalability in a business where it's at least double your income, If you would be doing the same thing, you're better off with a job. If you're doing something totally different, and what you do is a job you hate, and what you do is a business you love, and it's more than enough money, it's worth doing. Okay, But if you can't scale the business beyond double the income as an employee for the exact same thing, it may, it may not be worth doing. You have to make decisions based on other things. But it is, it is the case that a person making about $100,000 an hour of an employee will generally be ahead of a person making about $150,000 as a business owner self-employed unless some really strategic things have been done because the cost of doing business will eat away. But you do have a lot more freedom. So what I'm saying is if you're an engineer and you're going to go into your own business doing contract engineering, then Not don't do it if you could only make the same money, but you need to determine the scalable components of that business to get to 50% to 100% more, and it can be done. So think about it. So the scalability of the business, and again, it's based on your own wants, needs, and desires. Could I scale the Survival Podcast into a multi-million dollar radio show? Yes. Do I want the, the headaches, responsibilities, people, and all to go with it? No. So I had to develop a model that was scalable to provide me all the income I need so I could do it full-time. I did that through electronically deliverable product that has a, a extreme value compared to what I sell it for, and I can take another thousand customers for MSB tomorrow and have very little burden. I don't need to hire a person to do that. Right. So that was my model towards scalability. So you have to think about your own. You don't do what I did. You do what works for you because you might have a completely different goal. You might want 50 people working for you. You might want a company with a couple hundred people in it. You might want to create the jobs in your community. Go for it. Just because I don't want to do it doesn't mean it's not good. But you need to figure out the scalability formula that works in your business. Because let's say you're, you're going to have an egg business with chickens. 
You better run some numbers to see how many chickens you need, how much trouble it takes to take care of them, etc. You might be surprised at how much it takes, and it might not be scalable by itself. So then you might be able to scale it by bringing in other things. Just, just saying. Profitability. You cannot work for low profit margins when you work for yourself in a small business. Profit margins have to be high. They have to seem a little bit too high. You have to feel a little bit uncomfortable with the fact that your profit margin is that high. My cost of doing business to deliver an MSB account just for the product itself, not for the production of the whole business, is about two bucks. So if I sell that for 50 bucks, it's a $48 profit. Now it isn't really because you've got the server space, the time to do the show, all the other things that go with it, and it's my primary income, but it's a high individual profit margin. And you need to figure out how to build as much profitability into what you're doing as possible. And that doesn't always have to be with the individual product's profitability. If you can increase your ARPU, and you start using entrepreneur words and business words, ARPU, average revenue per unit, your average sale price. Okay, If you can push the average sale price high enough, then the individual profit margin can be lower. So if you're selling a $50 product, you need a much higher margin than if you're selling a $1,000 product. Okay, But if you're selling a $100 product, you probably can't cut your profit that much, even though you would think you can. But everything you can do to stack sellability, stack multiple purchases into a single customer, profitability, referability. This is A lot of people lump this in with marketability, but it's not. And I'll explain market and how referral and marketing works different than just straight referability. Referability is how easy and likely is it for one customer to tell another customer to do business with you without you doing anything other than be doing a good job of serving the customer. So, for instance, when I started the Survival Podcast, there was two types of referability there. And one was, it's a show. There's a million different ways to share it. It's easy to share. If you like it and you talk to somebody that talks to you about similar things, you probably say, oh, you should listen to this. Check this out. That's, that's straight referability. And good businesses are referable. They have some level of that in them where if you're doing countertops and somebody walks into a person's house and goes, God, that's beautiful. You're probably going to tell them where you bought it. It's referable without you doing anything to push with your marketing. If you are doing spin farming, and we'll talk about that in a bit, but you're basically farming in somebody's backyard, and somebody comes over to visit them, and they see all these garden beds back there, and they go, wow, how do you take care of all that? Oh, I don't. Some guy does it, and then he gives me a portion of the, the produce, and he sells the rest. And he has like places like this all over the place. That's very referable. Probably referable beyond your scalability. Okay? Right? So you can probably get more referrals for that kind of business than you can scale to doing the workload. You have to figure out a different, in a spin farming model, I'll save it, but you have to figure out a different way. Because when I've talked to people that do it, when they've scaled too large and got too many people in the business, they started to make less money to, to do more work. And that's not business ownership. That's being owned by a business. Marketability is how Easy is it to find people that will want to do business with you through your actions, whether it's signage, email marketing, online marketing, advertising, and referrals through request. So I talked about how referability worked for the Survival Podcast. In other words, people told people. There was also a component to the referability that I pushed in. 
And that was, I said, if you'll tell anybody about my show, just tell one person, here's all the ways you can do it, and swear that you've done so and fill out this form. When we get a 1,000 listeners, I will give away an iPod. That was a viral push marketing campaign that generated referrals because I asked you to. Okay, So if I'm an insurance salesman, which is not one of the businesses I have listed for you today, and I sit down with you and you buy a policy from me, and as I'm writing up your policy, I'll say, do you know anybody that might be in market for my services? And they say, well, I know Tom. I'm not sure. Just tell me how to get in touch with Tom. I won't push. You know, I'll just ask him if I can meet with him like I did with you. That is referability through my own actions. right? If you are out... And Tom's talking to you about, I have problems with my insurance company. My guy's great. Here, call him. That's natural referability. So understand the difference between the two. Because the more of natural referability you have in a business, the less you have to worry about the marketability from your active stance. Referrals are gold. Next, deliverability. How deliverable is your product as your business scales. How So if you came up with a business that was you clean rooms for children, I don't think that's a good business. That's why I'm using it. So you'll focus on what I'm talking about versus the business. So I clean rooms for children, and it takes you an hour to clean a child's room. And to be successful in business, you have to... Do 12 rooms a day yourself. It's a 12-hour day. It's not highly deliverable because you got to drive between places and all that. And that means you have to start hiring employees, and it starts to wrap into the scalability. And you need a lot more employees doing a lot more rooms to be able to pay them to make the same profit that you would if you could do it all yourself. So deliverability is about how deliverable the service or the product is. It is different than scalability. Because scalability is about how we increase deliverability. And scalability is also about beyond just delivering a product. It's also about things like customer service, handling returns, dealing with collections, right? And how much that's necessary in a business for it to grow. Deliverability is we're getting down just to, and, and deliverability is not just about how much, but how fast. Because if we can't deliver quickly or with reasonable expectation of the product, deliverability is also about the quality. If I go from handling five customers a day to ten customers a day, does the quality of the product or service suffer? So I have to look at, If I want this business to be successful and I want it to be profitable and referable and marketable and scalable, then the delivery has a limiting factor on all of those other things. I can market myself out of success. If I'm constantly sold out, I'm damaging my brand. So I might have to scale back my marketing during a buildup so that I can slowly build into the market. Or what happens is, a year later when I'm marketing my ass off, a customer says, they never have any anyway. I can't get from them. They're not available. Keltec firearms, right? They come out with something new. They used to come out with something new, and everyone's like, I got to get one of these. Now they come out with something new, and people are like, that's cool, but it doesn't matter. I can't get one for two years. And even if they fix that problem, trust me, that stigma is going to stick with them. They're going to have to work hard to convey. We've increased our production to where when we release something new, you can get it reasonably quick the first year that we have it out. 
So it's good to be sold out. Not if you're trying to grow beyond where you are, it's not. That means we need to increase production capacity. We need to figure out how to do it in a scalable manner. That's all about deliverability. Repeatability. How repeatable is the experience? This has to do with how customized you're being and how easy it is to train someone as you go into scalability. But if I buy from you today and I'm satisfied, the next time I buy from you, my minimum expectation is what I experienced last time. That's repeatability. If I bought trees from you and they were beautiful trees and I come back to buy 10 more, I'm coming back because of my first experience. How repeatable is that? If you start up a business doing lawn care service and you do a spectacular job and I'm paying the same as a, as a bigger company, but I'm getting a better quality. When I look at my yard, I feel like, wow. Well, that looks like I did it myself. And that's because you believe in your business so much that you're doing it. The minute you say, I need to hire another person or another crew, let's say you're running a crew of two, right? So you hire one person and you guys are knocking it out and now you got to hire, you say, I'm going to take this person that's been working with me, make them a leader and hire two more, one for me and one for them. The repeatability begins to go down because that person, no matter how much you've worked to make them you will never be you. No one will care about your business to the level that you do. So the repeatability will always be diminished as you turn things over. And what you have to do is develop the process as such that the repeatability is sufficient to satisfy the customer. If you develop a business with scalability, profitability, referability, marketability, deliverability, and repeatability, the only person that could screw it up after that is you. That, that's as simple as I can make it. But in the end, passion is the most important thing. And as I said earlier, not necessarily for the product, but passion for the business. And the reason is it's not easy. Running a business is not easy. It's hard. It means working when other people don't. It means worrying about things that employees never even see or know exist. It means having to deal with regulations and finding ways to get around things. It means having to deal with customers and not being able to refer them to another department. In many instances, it also means working a full-time job and running a business where you're working as many hours in the business as the job. If you have a 40-hour-a-week job, that's 80 hours. Now, let's do a little bit of quick math to understand what that means when you're working 80 hours a week consistently for several years to drive the business to the point where it can take over the income from the job. There are 168 hours in a week. If you cut your sleep down to five hours a day, it leaves you with 133 hours. And that's probably not enough sleep. But at times it may be required to be that way. And if we take that and then we subtract the 80 hours of work that you put in for your job and your business, it leaves you with 53 hours a week to do everything else in your life. To make dinner, to spend time with your family. If you're single and you're looking for a partner in life, to find that partner. To, to, to have recreational time, to tend a garden or whatever it is to do with your hobbies that you like to do. That's not a lot of time left. You know, if we, that's uh, eating. That's eating. That's your dinner time, which you might work through to, to rob some more time. But if we divide that by seven days a week, that's seven hours a day to do everything except sleep. Brush your teeth, take a shower. And it's probably not evenly dispersed. 
Because you have your jobs probably Monday through Friday. And you're probably cramming a few hours every day into that. And then you're probably cramming almost all your business work initially into your weekends. Or you're doing something crazy like I did, like getting up at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. And that's why Internet-based businesses have a lot of advantages because you can do work when you don't have customers actively engaged with you. I don't really have any Internet businesses here other than I'm going to say all businesses should have um, an Internet component to them today. But that's why the passion's necessary. Because I just gave you the, well, the easy way, the, the lightweight way. Uh, I would tell you that while I was building this show initially, I was working 55 to 60 hours a week with my job in conventional business. And I was probably putting about 40 to 50 hours into this a week. That's 110 hours. That's a lot. Did it for two years. Worth every second. But if without the passion, you won't do it. So you either have to have the passion for what you're doing or the passion for your own success. If you can have both, which is what did it for me, it's the best. So what are some businesses you could start and make successful? Um, some of these are going to sound pretty mundane, but I know people doing almost every one of these successfully and making a living. One would be house cleaning. I, I waited 40 minutes for you to come up with the first business, Jack, and you want me to be a maid. Uh, if you think like an employee, that's probably what you're thinking. If you think like a business owner, let me tell you. My, I guess you would call him my nephew-in-law is married to a wonderful young lady named Courtney. And Courtney went to school to be a medical assistant and some other stuff like that. And decided she hated all of it and wanted something else to do. She set up a housekeeping business. She now has multiple other people working for her. And I think she's doing as well or better than, than he is. And he does pretty well for himself. And... She has right now at a point where she has to decide how big do I want this to be? How much do I really want to expand? And she's been doing it for two and a half years. And that's what they do. They do house cleaning. But you know what? It's about repeatability with her. She fires people like that fast if they don't catch on quick. She brings a new girl in and for a couple weeks they clean houses with her. And it's meticulous. She cleans very high-end upscale houses, and she does it at like a military proficiency level. And if a person's not working out, I don't think this is right for you. You're going to need to go find something else to do with yourself, but bye now. If you can't get within a week or two to the point where she's like sending you to houses and not worrying about you, you're done. But very, very quick pathway to success. Another one is childcare, And This, the problem here is licensing and legal requirements and all. And there's places where it's easy, not the job itself, but to do is easy. And there's places where you can be shut down. My niece, another family member, started babysitting for a couple people that they knew. And she was working part-time in babysitting. In almost no time at all, she got to a point where she was making a full-time income, basically watching kids, From the time school let out to the time parents got home. Everybody was happy. Everybody loved her. It was costing them less than a daycare. And she was making than she would, more than she would have ever made working full-time in a daycare. She was great with kids. She has a degree in psychology. right? With a, with, with, with a kind of a specialization toward children. 
She's a wonderful young woman. She was doing a wonderful job. They were doing all out of their home, and everybody was happy. And then somebody told the man, and it ended up having to shut down her business. So it's proof that it can work. It's also proof that there's things that are in the way. But it's something with a tremendous opportunity if you can figure out how to do it right. And if you combine education with it. And there's other ways to do this. So my old martial arts teacher from Jacksonville, Florida, markets his karate as an after-school activity five days a week, and it costs less than daycare. And it's, and it, you know, four hours basically a day. But it's not four hours of karate. And I remember what it was like for me. He was sort of doing it then, but not marketing it that way. Like the first hour I was there, you just kind of hung out in the dojo, And he had weapons you could experiment with. He had things set up where we were like throwing knives and stars, right? This is much cooler than daycare for a, for a 12 year old. Uh, we would, he had areas set up where like if we had some homework to do while we weren't in class, you could just throw your books down and do your homework. It was great. So it, he was actually able to charge more, but deliver more value because you were also getting the discipline and the training of martial arts, the physical conditioning, etc. But he created an environment that was very appealing, especially, and I would tell you there was not a girl in that class at the time. I know from his website he's got girls in class now. At the time it was all boys, and they were all from, I would say, about 10 to 14 were the, the primary years, and everybody had a blast. We became great friends with each other. We stayed out of trouble. And basically, it was childcare with martial arts. And it got around some of the crap you'd have to deal with. So I'm not saying to do that. I'm saying that, like, maybe there's ways to get around that legal crap in a childcare type of business and actually make more money if you're creative. And that's what I want you to do. Next would be a general handyman. Everywhere we've moved... It's the first person we started looking for. All kinds of crap I need done. Don't have time. And plenty of it I could do. Don't have time to do it all. Pay a guy. He does it. He does it one time. He does it right. He does it on time. He does it on budget. Every time we have the budget to do another project, give it to him. How many customers like me do you need in that business to be successful? You know, the general handyman I've used, I've had three that were great. Usually you get in touch with them, they come out, they look, and they go, I can do this next week. Right? And if you really need something done, they try to get it done for you because you're a repeat customer, but that's how busy they are. They're at least a week out at all times. And I'm telling you, I can tell you the names. The guy in Pennsylvania was named Jack, not hard for me to remember. The guy in Arkansas was named Daryl, and the guy here is named John. I remember their first names. I remember the first names of people I do business with very seldom. Unless there's a repeatability there. And to me, they are worth a fortune. And if somebody says to me, hey, I need to get this done, call him. Just So the referability is very, very high. Right? And it's not necessarily the case that I'm in contact with people that often need that service. But I guarantee you, somebody in the area that says, man, we need somebody to come in and redo this wall. Call this guy. Don't call a painting cut. It's going to be expensive. Call John. He'll come over. He'll take care of it. <laughs> I mean... That is one of the, for the person that is kind of a backyard engineer type that can do everything from basic electrical work to, to construction work and things like that, painting, etc. just awesome. And it doesn't take that much money. Most guys that have that skill set have the basic tools you need, and you buy as you need only. A couple magnets on a truck, and you look professional. 
a decent button-down or, or polo work shirt and a simple badge, and you look professional. If you don't want to work that way, don't. I don't care. I'm just saying you can't. What I'm saying is you can, for very little money, have a very, you know, a, a site builder website and some basic pictures and a basic blog. Here's how you do this. Here's how you do that. All of a sudden, you're an authority. Very, very marketable, very, very referable. And, again, three that I've dealt with at three different properties, and they were all very valuable to me. Uh, next one, pet sitting and walking. Oh, how much money can you make walking a dog? Okay, so this gal that I know, Kathy, who is kind of one of the people that I've mentored in business, uh, lives in New Jersey and built a pet sitting business in two and a half years to the point where she was making almost as much money as her husband, who had 30 years of experience with computers. Oh, by the way, he ended up laid off and screwed by his company. Do you think she's laid off? The pet sitting business is awesome, especially if you love animals. And you know what she said every time I talked to her about it? The people that I work for will never get rid of me because of how I treat their pets. They just know. This is, let me tell you, this is why this was a good business for her. Because it may not be a good business for you just because I say it works. Kathy was a person that worked for an animal rights nonprofit that if they heard about a dog or a cat or something that was being abused, and they ver now understand, because this is, this is technically illegal, they verified that the animal was being abused. They would steal it and find a home for it. That, you gotta be committed to do that. You gotta be committed to do that. That's a person that loves animals at a level though that is, is extreme. And who do I want taking care of my dogs that I treat like family while I'm gone? I want somebody like that. Not easy to find. Not easy to find. But she has a very successful business, and her all her business comes from veterinarians. I mean, that's that's what it comes down. She went to every veterinarian she could get near, gave them you know handouts, business cards, etc., and said, "I will take care of your animals." And once the vet took a bet on her and sent one person to her, and that person came back, Kathy's great. That's it. There, there, there's stuff pinned up in the office, and anybody that asks, call her. Doesn't matter who else comes in the door, because I, I've got a sure bet here. Everybody loves her. Everybody raves about her. Highly referable. Done. That's a good business. Cooking, catering, home meal prep type stuff. Think about this. Like, you got to think about how you could, like, you want to be a caterer, catering weddings and crap. Maybe not. What if you set up a business like this? Once a week, I come to your house and cook your family a meal. I come in, I prepare the food, I serve it on the table, the whole family sits down, I do all the dishes, I put them away, and I leave. You hardly even know I'm there except when I feed you. You do that five days a week. What are you going to charge for it? A couple hundred bucks? Maybe. Depends. I don't know. Who are your customers? To me, if I was doing that, my customers would be affluent, high net worth individuals, who don't want a housekeeper to do that every day for them, that would like one meal a week where everybody can sit down and focus on each other and talk and be a family without going out to eat and without anybody having to worry about anything. Am I saying that I would do that business? Hell no. I personally would be in hell. Cooking five meals a week for five rich families. Horrific. I just don't want to do it. But I, I can't see... How you can't make $1,500 a week doing that and probably have an expense factor of about $500, bucks. that's $50,000 a year to work 12 hours a week. Just saying. 
again, do I think it's a great business? No, but I think it's a good business for the right person. Person that loves to cook, right? I think there's all types of ways that could be done. I think another awesome business would be looking to do this for people that are elderly and no longer can cook for themselves, where it's kind of like a Meals on Wheels, but the food doesn't suck that people pay for, so that maybe two or three times a week you go to a certain customer's place and bring them dinner or lunch, and you do it like, you know, reheatable, pre-prepared. There's a lot of different ways that could be leveraged. Spin farming. Spin farming, I think, is a, a business that's waiting to happen for people. Spin farming is you set up vegetable production beds, annual beds in backyards, and that means you have no cost of land ownership whatsoever. And you tend all your, your basically you have a small farm split up to multiple yards, and that allows you to use the cust- the customers, right, water for irrigation, etc. You do all the work, you do all the setup, you do all the harvesting, all the weeding, everything, They get a portion of the production. You take the rest and sell it. Um, There's people making very good money doing this. There's people losing their ass doing this. But it is now, again, is there a way to harness that concept smarter? Using other people's land, delivering a value to them and creating a surplus of value to deliver elsewhere. I'm just going to leave it at that. I have a lot of ideas, but your ideas are more important. How about being a professional pooper scooper? You know what? About 15 years ago, this concept started showing up in easy, quick businesses you can start. And now there are major companies, big companies with painted trucks that drive around with 100 employees that pick up dog shit that scoop out cat litter boxes, that charge people for it, and they pay it, that install doggy septic tanks on properties, that handle the maintenance of, of uh, parks, etc., that put in like pooper-scooper pickup stations and maintain them. There's probably a, a, a dozen more ways to leverage this concept of dealing with animal waste. But if you put dog poop removal service in Google, it will blow your mind You say, well, there's so weird people doing it. It doesn't. That's good. Let me break one big myth for you in business today for people that have never run a business. No one's doing it. That's bad. That means you're going to have to educate the market before you capture it. Okay? It doesn't mean you can't get some really good first mover advantage, but it's not always good. Let's put it that way. It's not always bad. It's not always good. But when other people are doing it successfully, that means you could do it too. Because you have to ask yourself when you look at a neighborhood with 500 houses in one big giant mega block, how many of those people even know that exists? How marketable is your service to them? How many of them own dogs? You know, and you know who is your market? With any, see this kind of as we're going through these ideas, you have to understand like understanding who your market is. I own three acres and two dogs. I'm not paying you to pick up my poop. I don't care. It's three acres. You don't even notice it. Don't even notice it. When you have, like, when I had a small suburban backyard, like my first house, by the time we put a pool in and stuff, poop after a week was noticeable. It was one of my son's jobs as a kid, right? I probably would have paid you to pick up the poop, but if he had the money, he would have. I'll tell you that right now. But I've talked to people netting six figures as 
dog poop elimination specialists. That tells you you can pretty much do it with anything. How about this? There's so many people in this audience that want to do the permaculture thing. And I want to have a CSA or a membership program or farmer's market sales or whatever. See, the selling is actually the harder part than the production. All around you are probably sources of organic and local food. What if you set yourself up as a middleman? What if all you did, all you did was focus on finding customers and you came up with sources. So you found all the sources of local food and organic food you can. Some might even be for more conventional markets. But what you'll notice is, okay, there's a guy with pastured pork. He's way up here. There's a guy with great eggs. He's way over there. There's a person with raw goat milk. They're over here. They're all spread out. And the person that wants all that food in their life is like, I, I, I can't drive here. And I mean, I found, like, I'll look and I'll say, oh, that guy's a McKinney. Holy crap, that's so far. I don't have time to go to McKinney. If there was a guy that would come to my house and bring me a, 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 a weekly share from multiple sources. See, and now it becomes feasible for you to make this big trip every week. Because you do the trip one day, you pack the food up the next day and deliver it to your customers on that second day. And, you, well, what if my customers are so spread out? Don't! You can spread out your sources because that's one big day of, of acquiring everything. Market in pockets. And I think there's a lot of opportunity with that concept, not just organic food. What can you source in sufficient diversity and quantity that's in demand that the end customer doesn't have a supermarket to acquire it in? right, Or a, a, a variety store to acquire it in? That is a repeatable purchase. That's the second side of repeatability. How often does a person come back and repeat their business? Okay, so if you have something that's a consumable, like food, that is hard to find the variety that one person would use per week, per month, per two weeks, whatever, and you can find it all, but it's all spread out, there's an opportunity every time, every time. Um, then there's another position I would call social media maniac. Uh, everybody wants to be a social media consultant. I'll tell your company how to leverage social media. Let me tell you something. You don't have to be smart to know how to use Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and all that stuff. You don't. That's why it works, because millions of people do it every day because they like it. Where companies have a problem is they just don't have time. I mean, if you look at what I do, I bust my ass communicating with my audience. But I only do so much on Facebook. I only do so much on Twitter. I do most of it through the blog comments. And, you know, if you had a person in a business that for 40 minutes a day did nothing but focus on that business social media, it would be extremely valuable. Okay? Think about that number, 40 minutes a day, if you're good. And had a 20-minute break, and you did it for another client for 40 minutes. And had a 20-minute break, and you did eight of those a day. How much do you need to charge each of them to make a good living? Well, one-eighth of your salary would make you a full salary. Well, I don't think that's enough. I would approach customers with the standpoint of, you know, for about 20% the cost of an employee to do this, I can do this for you as a contractor. And if you're not satisfied with my results, unlike an employee with all kinds of complicated things, you just no longer retain my services. Give me two weeks to prove what I'm doing. 
And come up with a way to quantify what you're doing because social media by its very nature generally doesn't have a quick ROI in dollars. It's about social capital. But if they know how many comments, how many interactions, etc., and if they can see that progressing over time and building momentum over time, you could end up with 20 people sitting in a small room lined out like an office in your house at some point doing that kind of a business. Because customers want to be interacted with. Now, here's the challenge. You have to know your customers well enough to respond on their behalf okay, in a way that won't commit them to something they don't want and will treat their customers the way they want them treated. Some customers want their, their, their some, some of your customers would want their customers babied. Some want to be plucky, like Southwest Airlines. You ever fly Southwest Airlines? You're like, I'm insulted and amused at the same time. It's great. Right? So, so, and some people are like, I don't like this. I want my ass kissed. So they go to another airline that pretends to kiss their ass and doesn't. Right? So it's okay to be that way if you know the customer likes that. So you over have to, over time, you have to develop into an extension of the customer. So this takes time. So you have to build this slowly at first. But what's the beauty of that? You could give a customer two hours at first and develop that customer to the point where you can deliver the same package in 40 minutes a day. And then get one more customer. Well, at that point, you're doing two hours and 40 minutes a day. That can be done part-time with a full-time job. Pretty easy. And you get two customers. And eventually you just start to phase out work. And all of a sudden you end up working, like Jack said, it was only a couple extra hours a day. Now I'm working 12 extra hours a day. But by the time you get there, you're probably six months to a year from going, dear employer, while I've appreciated the opportunity to learn and develop over the past blah, blah years, I am now seeking other opportunities. Thank you for all the wonderful experience Yours truly, your former employee, and writing a letter of resignation. You can do anything for a year, guys. You give me a hundred million dollars, I'll go to jail for a year. Just saying. You know, and you can either go to jail for a year, metaphorically, or spend the next 40 years in jail with a great work release program. It's up to you. Just saying. All right. Uh, next, plant leasing and maintenance. If you go to all the, you go to doctor's offices and stuff, you see all these nice tropical plants in there. Do you know that generally speaking, the, the people that run that office don't touch the plant, don't know anything about the plant. It's just there. Somebody once a week comes and prunes off dead leaves and waters it and fertilizes it and waxes it and does whatever. That's a business. Now, I put it in there because I don't know what else you could do it with, but I bet somebody else can figure it out. I know people that do it with fish tanks. Uh, that's big in doctor's offices and dentist's offices. Dentist's offices in particular seem to love fish tanks. And I think it's because nobody's excited to go to the dentist unless you're just weird. Right? Especially if you have to have any work, like a cleaning and all, whatever. But if you have to have work done, no one really gets enthusiastic about somebody shoving a needle in your mouth and then drilling a hole in your tooth. Right? Or tightening a brace if you're a kid. There's a certain amount of apprehension at a dentist office. And fish are soothing. Well, fish tanks are easy to maintain if you know what you're doing, and they're difficult to maintain if you don't. Okay, next I want to talk about uh, an idea that I had that I think is a completely original idea. Maybe nobody's doing it, but it certainly would be marketable because the product is marketable and other people are marketing a product, which is compost. So as a kid, 
I fished every farm, pond, stock tank, etc. I could get permission to fish. And by midsummer, it was a nightmare because the weeds would be, you know, 20 feet out from shore. And I came up with a tool that was basically a pullable rake that I made that would make a hole in the weeds. Now, I didn't do a lot of this, but, I mean, it would be like you'd throw it out and you'd yank it through the weeds and you'd do it about ten times and you get this big pile of weeds and you throw it to the side. And it was a pretty shitty version of the tool. And I think, I think better commercial versions of the tool exist today. But it was basically just a, like a float noodle with some long, it looked like a big rake with a float noodle and a rope. And you could carve a hole in the weeds. And places that I fished often, I would carve a couple holes. Then when I'd sit on the bank and fish, I'd fish where those holes were. Even if I wasn't fishing in the hole, when you caught something and were pulling it through, the, through there, you didn't have fish like caked up in the weeds. And it actually made these cool little weed coves that the fish would come into, so that was cool and all. What if you developed a really efficient way to de-weed those ponds and offered it as a service either for a low fee or maybe if you can do it right, no fee. I don't know how. you got to run the, the numbers on this and the metrics for you and how much is available, how much demand is out there. But i I got to believe there's a lot of people with these ponds that would prefer that they weren't weed choked all summer long. And if you found enough people... And removed those weeds, I have to believe, I, I don't have any proof of this yet, but the compost quality from those weeds being composted with some other materials, this would be your greens, right, with, with a carbon source. Carbon source is easy to find. Would have to be extremely fertile. I mean, if you had bad runoff problems with toxins or something, you wouldn't be able to use that particular pond. But you could pick and choose your customers, But the nutrients sink into ponds, and the development of soil is so rapid in ponds. That's why they sediment in over time and need to be pulled out. So that you're, you're, you just have this, this top soil building system in a pond, and you have the, the weeds extracting that nutrient. That just seems to me like a really great idea. It may very well not be a standalone business. It may be a business unit in a business. If you had enough sources of this material to go do it, and you could combine it with some sort of other organic composting business, it would be a real value add and a really unique thing to just be able to market that this is part of where your compost, or you have special compost made from this. And if you were to find out, well, what does this really work best for? You might find there are certain vegetables or fruits or something that that compost is dynamite for. And then you only have to find the people trying to excel at that, to sell to. So the reason I included it is not just because it's unique, but it's a model. If you can produce something highly specific, and there's someone that needs that highly specific thing to excel at what they're doing, it's an easy sell. If you can prove to me that my yields go up with this organic fertilizer of whatever product it is, or that it reduces pest pressure or whatever, I don't care. I'm buying it. As long as it doesn't interfere with my ability to make a profit, I'm buying it. It becomes a tool for me. Um, I think home staging has a real opportunity. Uh, there was somebody that commented on the blog that basically sells a home staging course that tells people how to do it themselves. And they're going to they're gonna jack the price up of what they're selling, like 500 bucks. And they're including my concept of the, 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 the buyer's handbook for the property in their new version. And I think that is... I mean, I'll, I'll tell you how to do this. You, 
and I'm going to give you the short version because I've talked about it before. Basically, you take a three-ring binder and you put every bit of information a buyer of a home would want to know in that book. Where pizzas are a like, think about it this way: when you go to a hotel, you're like, I don't want to go out tonight. I want to order some food. There's usually a book there, and it tells you like places that deliver to the hotel, and it tells you what services are available, etc. You do that to the extreme. You blow it out with nice dividers in it and everything, who the cable companies are, what the connection speeds available are, what the costs are. So cable, DSL, all of it. Dish, what's available from that, anything you can think of. What schools are in the area, what their national rank or their state rankings are. You, I mean, everything. You paint all the rooms neutral colors, etc. I'm not going to go into how you stage a home, but I can tell you this. I've sold my homes. That fast, up economies, down economies, profitably, every time, every time, every time, every time. And I'll tell you the secret. The secret is you find everything in your price range, you make yours at least 1% better than everything in your price range, your house sells. And it sells fast. There's always a buyer. Buyers are always locked into a price range, and they're always trying to buy the best they can in that price range. You push your property. To a, to, to a level that the person has come to, ex man, I'm just not going to get any better than this. And they walk into yours and they go, this is better. Even if it's not true, if you can make it feel tremendously better, that's the way to go. But if they just feel it's better, I can spend $150,000 on a house. That's all I have. It doesn't buy much in this market. But boy, look at the countertops in this place. I've not seen countertops like that in any other place. The carpet's new. I don't have to put carpet in. All the other places I looked at this price range, you know, the carpet's kind of old and needs to be replaced. Well, and you know, they got a real estate agent. We can negotiate with them on a, a carpet allowance or whatever. No, you put the carpet in. You become a master at staging homes. And there is a whole untapped, what I would call consumer level market. People that are selling houses for three quarters of a million dollars and up, they understand this. And many of them hire very, and when you start getting multi-million dollar homes, they hire very expensive, very good stagers that, that really make the difference. The hundred to five hundred thousand dollar market for homes, and most real estate agents are idiots. Okay, they know nothing about this. They come up with weird crap. They tell you things that doesn't really matter. They talk about staging, but they don't get it, and they don't understand it's not staging really. It's about that one to two percent rule. It's I want it to look better than everything else that a person will look at that's looking in this market in this area at this price. And I think that if you can add to your real estate home staging a consulting component, which would be something like when you get an offer, your agent's going to be an idiot. I already know that. But I understand business, and I understand buyers. Before you make a decision with your agent, I'll consult with you if you're my staging client for free. And I'll tell you, I've had to write for the last two home deals that I've had my own letter Back to the other agent because both agents who were different agents were morons because they don't understand business and they don't understand buyer psychology. You might be a great home uh, stager and not understand that, but if you do, if you have like a, the cutthroat concepts of business in your mind and you would be good at the home staging consulting, boom. And you know what you can do with this? You just approach buyers who have been on the market for 60 days or more and say, follow my instructions, sign a contract with me, Do what I say over the next week, and when your home sells, it's a $1,000 fee when it sells. When it sells. 
I'm not going to charge you until it sucks. I'm not going to pay for your paint. I'm not going to do the work. I'm going to give you a plan. I'm going to say, here's the thing. I'm going to get your budget. What can you put into your home to stage it? And I'm going to give you a plan you can implement in one week. And I'm going to step back. And when your home sells, I'll see that it's sold and we'll settle up on closing day. And you might want to think about the business model a little more tightly than that. I'm giving you a kind of an airspace business model. You have to drill down and you might take a deposit, et cetera, what have you. It might not be able to be do doable in a week. Because I'm going to walk in every house and go, get cheap painters in here with basic builder beige and paint this or do it yourself. Unless it's already done. I'm going to go to most places and go, these three rooms at least you need to replace the carpet in. And you got to get, that has to be done. right? Most, most sellers don't do these things. And you could also market to people that are getting ready to sell. When you're ready to sell, come to me. We'll work this all out. Then you can build in a tight referral network, network with real estate agents that aren't idiots. It'll take you a while. Because for every good real estate agent that I've talked to or worked with, I've talked to 10 stupid ones. And I, I know I sound harsh. I'm probably harder on real estate agents than financial advisors. But there's a reason. Because I've had three really good ones. And everybody else is so dramatically stupid compared to those three. And I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. And see, but when you have an industry where the people that are trusted are largely incompetent, it is an opportunity on multiple levels. So it might not just be real estate consulting, or I mean uh, home staging. There might be other ways you can work that to your advantage. You might become an agent, but that's not really what I want to do. But maybe it is what you want to do. Backyard nursery. I just did a whole show on this, so I'm not going to go deeper into it. I'm just going to tell you that the biggest thing that I believe that backyard nurserymen have going for them is they can, they can compete with the big stores by offering what they do not. So it doesn't matter that Home Depot sells the plant for five bucks and my plant's 15. They don't have my plant. You can't get it from them. And if you focus on perennials, which is what I would do, whether it's ornamental or edible, I don't care. I would focus on perennials. You're selling appreciating assets. You're selling somebody something that will be worth more in five years than the day they bought it. There's not a lot of things people buy from low to high dollar things that qualify as that. Houses, ding, 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 that, yes. Investments, if it works out, it goes up in value, right? So there is a risk with a tree or a bush. It could die, but it's probably lower than buying a stock. Okay, What else do you buy that appreciates in value? An education is priceless. Okay, we won't go there today. Education is priceless if properly applied and properly acquired. Yes, but uh, school is not an education. We'll leave that go, right? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find something here. Cars? One of the biggest expenses people have is their cars. Cars depreciate in value. You know, houses depreciate on a balance sheet if they're bought the right way for tax purposes, but we all know real estate appreciates in value in general, unless you're a dumbass. Um, but cars go down in value. TVs, electronics. Think, look around your house and ask yourself how many things that I own that I'm happy to own. I'm, if I sold the actual product I bought today, I would get my money back or more. And the answer is not many. Not many at all. But a tree appreciates in value. And I think that's extremely powerful. So my challenge then would be if you don't want to be a backward yard nurseryman, What can you sell that appreciates in value? It's easy to sell things that are worth more tomorrow than they are today. The, the more rapid the depreciation curve, the harder the sell is, unless it's a need. 
So I can sell you a car even though you know it's going to go down in value. I can even get you to finance it because you can't afford it otherwise and you need a car. But outside of stuff like that, things that depreciate in value become more and more difficult to sell. Even your iPhone depreciates in value. But people feel they need a phone. But one of my golden rules of business is you want to be on the want side of business, not the needs. People cut needs first, and there's giant corporations filling all needs. Okay? Wants are things that people cut last, and wants are individualized. So the small person can compete with the want because I can give the customer what they want where the big company can't. They have to focus on the need. Okay. Next one, I, I think you could do a really good business just doing tree pruning and firewood in certain places. This probably won't work well in really southern climates where no one burns wood and uh, the trees don't grow very well because it's a desert. Okay, Because uh, there's not enough trees to cut even if you could sell the wood. But if you live in a place where the average suburb has one or two big giant trees in the, in the front yard of every house, and those trees need to be pruned every year, and every house has a chimney sticking out of it, and everybody buys a little bit of firewood, uh, I know a gentleman uh, right here who I was very good friends with uh, when I was in the underground construction business. He dabbled in that a bit. He also dabbled in these big trailers that they put these real estate signs out. Uh, back when you could only put the signs out for like a certain number of days per week, like you could go out on Friday and had to be picking up on Sunday. He built a whole business doing that. That went away as some things were changed in that industry. But he was so he's just a serial entrepreneur. He also did Christmas trees, Christmas tree lots. Uh, but his big business was he did tree trimming and firewood. And he just had this beat up old piece of land and wood stacked as far as you could see. And He charged to cut the trees, and then he charged for the firewood. It wasn't even the best quality firewood. It could have been done better, but boy, he did pretty well for himself. So it can work. So here's another example. right? This is not the business. This is a model. The model is I'm paid to do something, and that thing that I'm paid to do produces another product that I can sell. So I'm trying to get my B guy, Jason, into this business model. I really am. Same theory. So every year in the spring, a properly managed beehive will swell in population to one of the things that you're trying to do is to prevent it from swarming. Like it's gotten too big for its britches, it's really healthy, and all the bees fly away and go somewhere else and make a new home. Okay? And one of the ways you do that is by dividing the hive, by cutting the population back. And when you do that, you take the population that you, you've cut away and you put it in a thing called a nuke, a small mini hive. And then that can be used to establish a new hive. Well, that's a package of bees. Uh-huh. You could sell that. So what most beekeepers do, they keep their hives, they manage their hives, and they sell packages, and they sell queens, or you know what have you. So what if you said, I'm going to be the bee guy, so this is a bonus business model, but it's right in with tree pruning and firewood, and I will come out and set up one, two, three, five, ten, twenty hives on your property, and once a month, I'll come by, I'll feed your bees, I'll inspect your bees, I'll do whatever needs to be done, and by the second season, I'll start doing the honey extraction, and just like you pay a pool guy, you pay your bee guy, he maintains your hives. There's so many people that want bees. They want fresh honey. They want it, They want the whole package. They have backyard orchards, whatever. They don't like messing with bees. They just don't want to do it. 
In fact, I've, to- I've been talked to many beekeepers who say they help somebody set up their bees and then they never want to mess with them. You know, even if they buy all the equipment and all. And I'm in that. And to me, I, <laughs> I don't mind messing with the bees. They, when they get a little pissed off and start ramming me in the head and the face and stuff, when they're a little bit upset with me, they bug me a little. But I, I get over that, right? Got a full suit on. It's not that big a deal. I just don't have the time. I have so many other things I'm doing. This is like one more thing. So my bee mentor is basically filling that role for me because he's a show listener and, you know, it's kind of like, hey, this is something I can do for you because, you know, you've done a lot for me. But I want him to go into that model. I want him to come up with what's the price per hive to deliver an installed hive, what's a maintenance monthly fee, and let's market that thing. And I believe I can market that for him right here in his area and give him a fifty to $70,000 revenue stream and not work that hard for it. Plus, here's the thing. What is it? So that's just the fee for installation and management. But every hive, every year that does well is going to produce a package that can be sold. That's another product, which can be used to either just sell off to another beekeeper, can be used to expand his own hives that are doing something completely different, out doing pollination services, or to fill the, the demands of the next customer that wants hives in their backyard or on their property managed. I, and that's another example. I'm paid to do one thing, and it produces a surplus of something I can sell somewhere else. You can't do better than that. Usually, there's a cost to acquire what you sell. If you're paid to produce what you sell and then sell it again, it's double dipping in a great way. Uh, another opportunity would be something like debt collections, done in ethical way. What if you just contacted every small business in your in your uh, in your area? And said, when something ages out on your accounts receivable past X, turn it over to me. I will not threaten people. I won't yell at them, whatever. Tell me the terms you're willing to accept. Give me some leeway so that when I pull you, I would get a good database program for this. And when I pulled up the customer that owed, you know, XYZ Corporation 800 bucks, I could look at XYZ Corporation's, you know, demands. And basically call that person and say, look, I'm not from, you know, Joe Spooty's collection or whatever. I'm not here to shake you down. Um, but we do have this, this debt. We haven't reported it to collections yet, uh, collections agencies or anything like that. I, I work a little bit differently. What can you do? How can we work this out? And you say for everything I collect, I get 10% because otherwise you're getting nothing. Because you're going to, when you sell it off to a collections agency, you're going to get 50 cents on the dollar. I'm getting you 90 cents on the dollar on what you collect. You can still sell it off later. Or 20%. I don't know. Whatever works. Whatever people are willing to pay for. Um, I think that if there were more people like that, there'd be less of this mega collections agency scumbaggery. That most people that owe money to a business want to pay the money. They really do. They want to pay the money. They just can't for whatever reason. And if you give them an opportunity, okay, look, we can set up a payment plan for you. You know, um, and and let's get that worked out. And then you stay on top of that collection. You know, how much money do you need to collect a day to make a salary? Not that much. And how trainable is that? So once you build a certain amount of business up, it's it's pretty repeatable. It's not a hard job to teach somebody to do. And that's a kind of company you could scale to five, six, seven employees without having a traditional office space. You know, with an extra room in a house, it could be done. I'm not saying I would do it, but it certainly could be done. How about power washing? Get a good quality power washer and power wash decks and 
sidewalks and equipment and things like that. I know people doing that that make a decent living. It's usually a person that's more of a landscaper, handyman, something like that. It's an extra thing they do, but it, it, it could be a core to a business that develops over time. Pool care. My son's working on this right now. If he'd hustle, he could make way more money uh, doing pools than he ever will make being a bartender. Way more. Um, he's in business because an older gentleman that we had doing our pool got to a point where he's like, I can't take any more customers. And he makes a very good living doing it because he specializes in above ground. And no one seems to want to clean above ground pools. And you might say, Jack, you're a survivalist. Why don't you clean your own pool? Time, dude. Time. I have to decide if I spend two hours a week cleaning that pool, could I do more for myself in that two hours financially than if I paid somebody 30 bucks? And the answer is I can do more for myself with that two hours. I can either take it as actual rest time, I can work on all the other things I've got going on, or I can work in my business. And trust me, two hours of my business is worth more than 30 bucks, or I wouldn't be in business. So as a business owner, I think differently than a lot of consumers do, right? I think what is the value of my time, and not in some weird way in some book that you read about rich people. I think about it just flat mathematically, not, well, I'm paid X. I think about what is my operational production of being doing my job, doing my business. And if I, if I'm, once you own your own business, it's no longer theoretical. It's real. If I'm screwing with that pool, right, and I just don't want to, And I have the means, and it's more profitable not to. It's a done deal. I'm going to do it. But every time we've had an above-ground pool, finding somebody to do it was hard. And that means we actually paid a little bit more than a person with an in-ground pool would pay. So that's an opportunity right there. So, again, it's not I'm saying go do this. I'm saying what can you find like that? There's a, a, a sub-niche, right? So you have a niche, pool owners. A sub-niche is above-ground pool owners. Some sort of stigma or some BS prevents pool companies from wanting to deal with that sub-niche. You go deal with that sub-niche. It could be anything. Tour guides and being creative with being a tour guide. Very creative. Here's what I mean. A tour guide typically, I'm a tour guide in Rome, and I show people the Colosseum and all the shit that everybody else sees. I've talked about this before with, with business shows, but like one way this could work is specializing in backpacking trips that are day trips for families where people go into a trail system that everybody already knows about, but there's all these, there's always special places in trail systems that most people don't know about. And if you grew up there and lived there your whole life, you could know all of these. And you could blog about them, and you could post pictures of them and things like that. And then basically your job is you take walks with people. And not these overnight, you know, wilderness trekker things. You can do that if you want to, but that's very special. This is much easier. This is much simpler. This is being home every night. You know, again, do what you want, but I mean, I'm just, this is another model. And I have a way to extend that that I'll say for the last one that I have today. But th that type of concept. So again, look at the model. The model is there's people who want to see things, and you give them a way to see them at a, at, at something that gives them a better experience. Um, the next one is deck fence cleaning and staining. When I drive through suburbs here in Texas, Every yard has a six-foot-tall wooden privacy fence, and most of them are either shitty or headed toward becoming shitty because no one knows how to stain them or maintain them. If you're set up to do nothing but that, you can do it very, very quickly, very, very fast. And if you're doing fencing, 
You might as well do decks. And I actually kicked that around at one time in my life. Like, when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do for myself, I'm like, you know, I'll never get rich, but what an easy day. What what a non-complicated thing. And the thing is, once you get one customer, you're in a neighborhood, you have the ability to extend out from there, create re, you know create cost sharing between neighbors that want to share a fence, etc., uh, the cost of a fence line, etc. Then you can do basic repairs and other things like that. And there's not a lot of competition for it. There's sure a lot of opportunity because there's a lot of shitty decks and fences out there. Um, the next one, I call it eBay consignment trading, but you wouldn't have to just use eBay. But there are so many mom and pop, you know, uh, antique and boutique shops and things like that. Uh, secondhand stores, thrift stores and things like that. If you just developed a book of business of 20 or 30 such shops, and all they did was send you the picture, the description, and the cost, you could just sell it for more. People do this and do very well with it. And a lot of these people only stores, they don't have time for that, that segment of their business. They need somebody to develop it for them. And you could do it with a direct relationship or an indirect relationship. As long as you know where the product is and how much it costs, if you can sell it for more, go get it. If somebody tries to buy it and it's, you know, you, you go to verify that it's still there and it's sold, just say, hey, I'm sorry it's sold. Now, eBay it would be difficult to do that with. You'd have to find another channel. And once somebody bids on it, you're kind of committed, at least if they've exceeded your reserve and what have you. But the whole concept of simply selling things that other people already have and, and finding a, a market that they don't have, becoming that middleman that way. I think there's a good business for anybody that really wants to be a fishing and hunting guy. I really do. I think fishing's better. You know why? Hunting has a lot more limited seasons. Fishing, if you know a lake or a river system and you have a good boat and you're well-equipped and you can consistently put fish in the boat, you can get customers and you can make them happy. And they will refer and they will come back. It's not very scalable. This is a lifestyle business, right? And in some ways, my business is a lifestyle business. But if you love fishing, there's, there's money to be made as a fishing guide. There's always a struggle in that market. But I'll tell you what the advantage is. Fishing guides are marketing morons. I have never met a fishing guide that's a good marketer. All of them are huddled around itty-bitty forums online, trying to get a few customers out of forums and a few listings. Back in my day in business, I went to hundreds of mixers and chamber of commerce meetings and things like that. Do you know how many fishing guides I met in those situations? None. None. And at times, you know, I had big clients when I was doing this. You know, working as a, uh, a, a sales VP for Fluke or Garrett. And I'd had customers that wanted to play golf or go out to eat and things like that. And if I'd run across a fishing guide at one of these, these meetings, because I ran across all kinds of people. I mean, you go to these things, you kick a table, and like 20 financial advisors run out from underneath it. You kick another table, like 50 freaking insurance people run out. You go over here and you kick it and real estate agents come out. I mean, they're, they're just infesting the place like roaches. And uh, you, But you, you, you seldom meet people that you really think, hey, I can really refer business to this person or develop some kind of relationship or give this person business. But if I had run across a person and they said, you know what, I'm a fishing guide. And I specialize in business fishing trips for people that want to do client entertainment. Here's my card. Done. Done. Because I'm different than every other salesperson. Every other salesperson out there, I'm different then. I don't want to take you to play golf. You probably played golf until you're blue in the face. Do you like to fish? 
And my clients that don't like to fish, I don't take them. Or they, they, they don't know. You won't have to know anything. This guy's great. It'll be awesome. I'm not taking you out in the ocean. You're not going to get seasick. We're going to go out. We'll drink a couple of beers. We'll put some fish in the boat. We'll talk. We'll relax. And you can say you're doing vendor relations. Get out of work for a day. Awesome. Now, what I used to do, and this is another business you could set up if you do it right. Uh, instead of trying to be a uh, firearms instructor, whatever, set up a really great sporting clays range if you have the ability to do it. That doesn't have to cost a lot of money. If you're in an unincorporated area, you don't need that much land. Shotgun pellets don't go that far and, and tend not to kill people. Thank God for Dick Cheney, right? You know, I mean, it could have been much worse for him when he shot his buddy in the face. Um, but sporting clays is golf with a shotgun. And I did take clients to shoot sporting clays, and some that had never touched a gun before, and they had a blast. So that's another business, another bonus one. Um, and then the last one I have for you today is a vacation planner. So I talked about being a tour guide, but let's look at it a little bit differently. Let's look at it this way. If you're coming to XYZ town, area, whatever, fill out a form for me. Give me your daily budget, how long you're here, how many hours a day you want something set up for you, etc. I will put together an itinerary for you, and I will send it to you. You do what you want out of that itinerary. And here's the best part. I charge you nothing. I don't charge you a dime. In fact, I get you as good a price or better than you would get if you did it on your own. And you don't have to take my recommendations, but my clients that do are very pleased with how I set up their time for them. You don't have to think. You don't have to worry about the quality. You tell me what you like to eat. I find the right restaurants for you on what nights you want to eat there. You tell me you want to go out on a boat trip. I find that trip for you. And I know exactly when that boat comes in. I know the restaurants, the quality, and I know how long it's going to take you to get from your boat trip, go clean up and go out. I set that up. I just give you all the information. I just give you the list and you go do it. Well, how the hell does that make you money? Some of you are business-oriented enough that you know. Every person that I'm going to send business to, I have a referral agreement with. Every person I send horseback riding with you, you charge 50 bucks a day per person, I get 10. Or I don't send you business. You know? Or, you know, let's work out a price that works. What? I'm going to be your salesperson. Every bit of business you're going to get from me is incremental. They're all going to be customers that already set up, know what to expect. I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that you have the space available before I tell them. If they're going to say yes or no, when they say yes, I'm going to confirm with you. When they say no, I'm going to tell you the space is still open. So how much it is. Every restaurant, how much, how much is a customer walking in the door worth to you? Five bucks? Fine. One person's week-long trip could be worth hundreds of dollars to you. Just and, and think about this: the more you automate it, the more you refine the parameters, the more you quality control, the more you eliminate suppliers and favor suppliers, the faster it gets. You could conceivably, within a couple months, with a little bit of help from a computer programmer, especially, get to a point where the the client fills out a form, and 80% of the work is done before you even get started. And you just send them a, a, a page. Book this, book that, book, and that locks in your referral fees. Create reservation at restaurant. Reserve space at lake. Done. 
Now, how's that different than these websites that are out there that are run by Chamber of Commerce and list everybody? Because you don't get any information from there other than they paid. You've told me you want to fish for striped bass in August, and I've told you don't do that. Actually, I wouldn't, but I'm just that's an example. Don't do that. We don't recommend. We recommend that you do this instead. If you want to fish? This is what the fish were this time of year. These are the guides that are like you're too close. None of the guides here that are any good for this species are available. But this guy is catfish and he's awesome. You want to do this or you don't want to fish this time around. That saves me. You, do you know what the most valuable commodity a person has on a vacation? Their time. You want to get me infuriated? Let me land in an airport. Go to pick up my rental car that I reserved two months in advance and my car is not ready. I am ready to grab the guy behind the computer by his nostrils and pull him across the counter and ask him where the F my car is. That's why we become a member of Emerald Carpet. So we don't have to deal with that crap anymore. But that's because you're cutting into my time. This is my vacation with my family where I don't have to work. This is my time you're on. If you can save people time and give them quality of what they expect on a vacation, you're worth something to them. You might even charge them for the service. But I think you can make the bulk of your money on the backside. This makes it easy. Why wouldn't you try that? Fill out this form. We tell you everything to do with your time. And we base it on how much time you want us to occupy for you. I already know I want to do this, this, and that. I want to do this, this, and that on those days. Those time blocks are not available. So this is what I want. Boom. Now, scalability with that. Just to kind of get you thinking on a different level. There's no reason you can't do that in any area with a, a significant influx of tourists and vacationers. The genius programmer could develop that platform and sell it to townships and cities, or franchise it. So you could theoretically build a computer program to do this at a national level. Anywhere you want to go, it'll do it for you. But it's never going to be... See, this is where humans and technology have to work together. The reason you can make that business work, if you live in the place that you're doing it at, is you can go eat at that restaurant. And you can say, you know what, guys? I can't recommend that my clients come here. You're, you, here's the places you're weak. Here's here's my assessment. You might not like it. Uh, I'm sorry. This is how I feel. If you correct these things, invite me back in for a meal. Demonstrate to me uh, that you've tightened this up, and I will put you on my recommended list of providers again, and we can work together. No computer can do that. You know. Well, what about Yelp and all? Yelp is only. Here's the thing. It's only so reliable. And if I have that relationship with you, this is where you start to understand the, the business components of things. So let's say I have a relationship with a stable operator. You'd like to believe that everybody that went to those stables is going to get the same treatment. But if I am their biggest customer, okay, I am going to get priority when something has to be sacrificed that ain't going to be me. It's going to be somebody else that's a one-off customer. If I'm your broker... I am the actual customer with that stable operation. Therefore, you become their biggest customer. Because if I leave, it's not just you. It's all the business I bring with me. It's creating individual guilds that you control. 
for permaculture, right? These are the ways that you build businesses. And, you know, you might have an idea. I want to build five different really cool accessories for firearms that, that are either really expensive and I can do them for less and they don't exist. And it might have all kinds of setup expenses and all kinds of headaches. I would go, I would never do that, but it might work for you. You cannot judge the success or failure of a business based on somebody else's opinion. You can only judge it on your own assessment of your willingness to drive it and make it work. These 22, 25, 26 ideas, whatever it ended up being in the end, are just that. They're ideas. What works for you is what's important. And what I want to encourage you to do, though, is to like let all these things I put in your head today just kind of percolate over the next week. Don't really do anything with it unless you're just bored and don't have anything to do. Spend the time with your family. But see where it leads you. You might think, that's a really stupid idea, Jack. Oh, that's the one you need to focus on. Whatever I told you was the dumbest idea, in your opinion. Like, I would never do that. What is the model of that business? And if you ha if I made you follow the model, I said, this is it. You're broke. You're dead broke. You live in a box. Okay? You live in that box until you make some money. And I'm going to put this electrode in your ass. And if you do anything that's not part of this business model, that electrode's going to go ass off and electrocute your ass from the inside out. You live in a box until you make this business model work. You don't have to do the product. You have to follow the model. What product or service would you install in that model? And you might still not do it because you're not really living in a box and I'm not really going to electrocute your ass from the inside with an electrode. But the mind now is being forced to work. Who that works out goes, I can't wait to do squats and lunges, right? It's the shittiest exercise there is. You, no one loves doing squats and lunges unless you're a masochist, right? But we do them because that exercise is one of the most, it's a huge muscle group. And it does so much for you. So if you force yourself to figure out how I would make a business model work, what What can I, now the mind starts to switch on. You go, I'm not doing that. And also the mind starts going. And you start saying, well, I wouldn't do that, but I would do this. And then boom, 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 boom. And you start connecting dots that you would have never connected for because the mind becomes stronger. That's what I'm trying to do is help you exercise your mind with the ideas. Because in the end, remember this. It's the why, the how, the execution, and the passion of a business that makes it work, not the product. With the caveat, if your product is really shitty or has no market, it can't work. But most products or services have markets. So it ends up being the how, the why, the execution, and the passion. You want to sell black and white TVs? I don't know. Maybe you can figure out a niche for it. But, boy, that's not what I would do. Typewriters or something. You know, I guess if you're selling them to nostalgic institutions like restaurants where they have hokey stuff all over the wall. Maybe you can specialize in typewriters. I don't know. But boy, that's a hard road to climb. You know, if your business is, I come to your house and punch you in the head, you pay me a thousand dollars and I punch you, you're probably not going to make any money. But if you're going to do something that somebody's doing profitably, then you're the variable, not the thing. So it's less the idea and more the entrepreneur, the passion and the execution. 
That's really what it's all about. With that, hey, we are done for 2014. The Christmas special will be out tomorrow. It's going to be awesome. I've redone it so the auto quality's up. I've, I've remastered it. If you want to listen to the old version, uh, you can listen to one of the, the prior years and hear all the static and the road noise and everything. So I've redone that already. And I have a special gift for you. At the end of that show, I play a version of Oh Holy Night by Martina McBride. And it is beautiful. It is the first verse in acapella and then the whole song with instrumentation. And that woman, for a girl that's probably five foot two, sings with a voice that's six foot six. She's incredible. And no matter what your feelings are religiously or spiritually around the Christmas holiday, you can't listen to that song without feeling amazing. It's just beautiful. And I had this on a CD. I don't know where the CD went, and I cannot find that version of the song. So I found a version of her singing it in a cappella at the Grand Old Opry and spliced it together and made a new version for the end of the show because the old one was kind of scratchy and not really that great. And then I put together a video that some of you have seen already. It's on YouTube now. I'll have a link in today's show notes where you can see it. And it's just a bunch of beautiful Christmas scenes. Faced through about 20 seconds apiece with that new version, with the acapella. And then share that with your family this season. Just give it a shot. Especially if you've been having a hard time, and I have this year, feeling like it's Christmas. It's 68 degrees outside. I got chickens and geese looking in the window at me, and everything's green, and there's not a snowflake to be seen. I haven't had a day below freezing since Thanksgiving. I'm not getting a white Christmas. And that and other things with work and all make it hard to feel like it's Christmas this year. I think if you give that a shot, it'll put you in the Christmas spirit. So have a listen to the Christmas special tomorrow. Share this song And listen to that lady sing at the end of the episode and in the video, especially toward the end of the acapella. It's amazing to me that a human being's voice can sound that way. And I know I'm supposed to be the big, tough, modern survivalist and all, but I'll tell you what. If we don't appreciate our lives, they're not worth living. And a life worth not worth living is really not really... Why are you worried about surviving then? It's in the small moments that we fulfill our, our potential. And it's how you develop things like your own business, your own lifestyle planning, etc. Instead of letting someone else manage you. As I end up this year, I want to tell you that my biggest goal is to free slaves. That's, that's really what my job is, is to free people from slavery. And there's all types of modern slavery people have attached themselves to. Thinking for yourself independent thinking for yourself and controlling your life and controlling your own destiny. You take those steps and you break the bonds of debt slavery, of corporate slavery, of media slavery, of political slavery, of letting somebody else think for you, tell you what questions to ask and tell you what the answers are before you even ask them. That's what I've been trying to teach you all year. That's what I've been trying to teach you for going on seven years now. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. In our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. 
Revolution is you. 